of all the plastics created since mass production began, more than half of it has been produced since 2000. In 2020, 219 million metric tons of fossil-based plastics were produced. And already enormous, the amount of plastic waste that is generated is expected to triple by 2050. like our show and want to learn more, please visit our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below, where you can gain access to a very simple 10-day body reset program that teaches you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and guides you on how to lower blood sugar, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Additionally, you can find a body optimization program, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. You can also find a link to schedule a one-on-one consultation with me. Welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta, where we talk about optimizing your health and maximizing your genetic potential. The future is plastics. That's what Dustin Hoffman said in the now famous quote from the movie, The Graduate. And we're seeing the future now. There's plastics everywhere from water bottles to food containers to food wrapping, the clothes, the packaging, the list goes on and on and on. The question is, are we doing ourselves harm health-wise and environmental-wise by using all this plastic? Why should we care about this? Are there any other chemicals that we should care about? To answer this and many more pertinent questions, we're truly honored to have Avi Kaur, Senior Attorney and Senior Director of the Health and Food and People and Communities Program at the Natural Resource Defense Council. Since joining NRDC in 2007, Avi's work has spanned toxic and food issues, covering toxics and consumer products, regulation of harmful chemical, harmful chemicals, antibiotic use in livestock, hazardous air pollutants, and California drinking water standards. He received his bachelor's degree from Williams College and his JD from the University of California Hastings College of Law. Before we delve further, I must express my deep admiration for NRDC as an esteemed organization. Although I mentioned, although I maintain no formal association with them beyond being a devoted supporter, I must acknowledge their pivotal role as a leading environmental advocate, tirelessly advancing remarkable initiatives at both the federal and state levels. In this tumultuous area of ecological challenges, their invaluable work is a beacon of hope. Therefore, I extend my heartfelt gratitude to Avi and the entire NRDC team. And Avi, I warmly welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So let's start with a simple question. Why should we care about the plastics we're using, the plastics we're generating? Sure. So of all the plastics created since mass production began, more than half of it has been produced since 2000. In 2020, 219 million metric tons of fossil-based plastics were produced. And already enormous, the amount of plastic waste that is generated is expected to triple by 2050. And, you know, this doesn't even count. Let me just take a step back. And so that's this enormous amount of plastic that's going to be out there. This is, and as we reduce our use of fossil fuels for things like fueling vehicles and other kinds of fuel uses, the industry is increasingly shifting towards the production of plastic. That's been identified in numerous articles, and it's another pathway for fossil fuel to another avenue for fossil fuel to go and to be used. So one thing that is evident from all this is it's going to undermine our climate goals if we continue to allow for the growth of plastics. 
but I work in the health space and I want to talk about why it's a real concern from a health perspective. Yes. We already know that this is causing massive natural damage as well. We know about the plastic gyres in the ocean. We know about the damage it's doing to wildlife and to biodiversity, but we don't really hear about the harm to health very often. And the problem with plastics is that it involves risks and exposures from a health perspective throughout its life cycle. Of course, the extraction and use of fossil fuels, whether the processing of the fossil fuels all generate enormous amounts of potential pollution, whether it be air pollution or hazardous waste. You know, a lot of these facilities are located in parts of the country that are in environmental justice communities, and they especially face high amounts of exposure to the, the results of all these processes. So, you know, you think about Cancer Alley in Louisiana, the processing plants in Texas. We're talking about black and brown communities and, and poor communities that are getting exposed to the waste that comes from these facilities and the processing of the fossil fuel for the generation of plastic. Then there is the addition of various chemicals to plastics to make them work the way they're intended. And it's a, not only are the chemicals used to process the plastics, but they're also added to it to function in certain ways. So you get things like phthalates and BPA, which are hormone-disrupting chemicals, or PFAS, which are a major class of chemicals that we're concerned about. They're often called toxic or forever chemicals because they last such a long time in the environment and can build up and an enormous class of chemicals and all sorts of other chemicals that are being used in processing or making plastic. That often ends up in people's homes and, you know, flame retardants, for instance, may be used with plastic and can end up in the dust in people's homes. So there's exposure. First, we talked about in the production. Now we're talking about how it's used and where it might lead to exposure. And then there's the disposal or how it's managed. This can end up in a landfill. It can end up in an incinerator. It can end up in the, out there in the world creating microplastics. And so all these things that are added to plastics can then create exposures for people after the end of life of the product as well. And, you know, the microplastics themselves are increasingly matters of concern because the average person is estimated to consume a credit card's worth of plastics each week. And that's, that's, a, that's an incredible statistic. And I'll, and I'll, I'll stop you there because you said so yeah. much. In yeah, sorry. <laughs> We're going to break it down during this yes. podcast, but you really- Absolutely. Very nicely. You know, it, we we commonly- we use water bottles on very often on a daily basis. People, you know, there's there's constantly these disposable containers that we're given and we just throw it away without thinking otherwise. And, you know, many people are like, well, if it's away from me, if I don't see it, then I'm not I just out of, you know, out of sight, out of mind type of thing. Mm -hmm. What you're clearly saying is, yes, you know, that's that's certainly happening. We're trying to, you know, dispose of it. But we are there are all these other consequences that go around of Go, go around with this plastic production, the consumption economy that we're, or economy ecology that we're living in. So the, the, I think one thing to consider, and one thing you mentioned is the amount of plastic that's out there currently. It's such a tremendous amount. And you mentioned the plastics and oceans and you, and you mentioned a bit about recycling plastic. Can, can we dive into that just a little deeper? What kind of plastic are we seeing out there? And, and people are like, well, I, I put it all in my recycling. It, it should be fine. You know, I, I should be fine there. Like, what's, what's happening with that? Yeah, current estimates. This is a story that came out a few years ago, and it's, it's really been, it was shocking for many of us, that only 9% of plastics ever produced is estimated to ever have been recycled. 
um, which is, you know, just a fraction. And most of it, we've been sold this this story about recyclable. That doesn't mean it is getting recycled. And that's a huge difference. Most of this stuff is ending up in landfills or getting disposed of in some other way. And so, you know, there's some kinds of recycling that have been successful and some amount of recycling that's happened, but we're clearly not meeting the the full task. You know, we're not up to the full task at the moment. They're not, you're saying, and, you're saying 9% of all plastics. Yes, that that's the estimate. Are, are recycled. And now I know that there's some that you, you don't have the recycle symbol on. Some you do where it says, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. The ones that that have that recycle signal or, or that the arrows on there, it, are those the ones that are being recycled or those aren't even being recycled? Not even all of those are being recycled. But what that says is recyclable. The idea that it's technically conceivably recyclable. The reality is our infrastructure, our systems are not built for that to be recycled. They're often very theoretically <laughs> recyclable. So that's the distinction I'm making between recyclable and recycled. Yeah, even the stuff with the recycle symbols on it, a lot of it is not getting recycled. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't follow your waste authorities or your waste agencies' directions uh, and suggestions for how to recycle. Some of that stuff does get recycled. They separate it out and try to do what they can with it. But the reality is most of the fire plastic out there is not getting recycled and is not truly recyclable. And so... And, and should we then, should we stop even trying to recycle that? No, then that's what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, I think you should you should follow the advice of your local recycling authority and s- see what they recommend and try to follow that because they'll recycle as much of it as they can. But the reality is that there's a lot of plastic out there that is not recyclable in, in reality and that we need to find better ways of dealing with this. We need to reduce our use of plastics. We need right. to use, reduce our unnecessary use of plastic. There's plastic showing, I mean, you know, there are going to be uses of plastic that are important, that, that are durable, that, you know, we may need to continue using for a while until we find better alternatives. But there are tons of uses of plastic that are really unnecessary. You know, we don't need everything packaged in a little layer of film. Exactly. And, it, it's sort of like the, you know, the functional medicine is really focused on root causes of disease, right? They're, they're yeah. fundamental root causes of disease. And the root cause of this is the production of plastic. And that's exactly right. And you have to tackle it from the root cause. So just stop using it. And, and I, I hear you and I, it frustrates me as well when I purchase food, which is, you know, the thing that obviously we, we buy the most of out of all consumer goods. It's always, oh, there's always some plastic wrapper on, on things, on fresh vegetables and things like that, that you don't, you don't really need. Yeah. You, you purchase something online. There's a bunch of plastic wrapping on that. I mean, it just, it, ha- it we just can see it. We see it over and over and over. And, you know, someone like you and me and many of our listeners out there are truly concerned about this. What can they do to decrease their use? That's a really good question and a tough one because, you know, plastic is all around us and it's very hard to avoid. And there've been stories about people trying to avoid it and having a very difficult time. But, you know, as somebody who works on these issues, I try and you can look for you know, there are simpler ways of avoiding certain repeatable uses of plastics and people can look at that. But eventually you can't buy your way out of this problem and we need policy to help address the issue. So I can talk about some of the ways you can address, reduce plastic in your own life and what I'm, the kinds of things I'm doing. But I also recognize that an individual can't simply buy their way out of the problem and we need to be thinking more collectively, more from a policy perspective to truly address the problem. The individual things that I kind of look at are 
my repeated actions where I can try to reduce the stuff. So, you know, of course, taking your bags to the grocery store, if, especially in places where plastic bags are used, you know, trying to buy things that are reusable and refillable wherever possible, you know, trying to, for instance, on cleaning products and stuff, there are now alternatives which don't rely on the use of large amounts of liquid or large amounts of plastic because you can buy tablets and that come in compostable material. So there, there are various ways of reducing, you know, looking for the opportunities where you can to right. buy things that are more durable and more reusable and less plastic are involved. Being a conscious consumer of yes. plastic goods, really. And okay. I think that can help in creating the market for the better alternatives that are out there. And it's it's an important role for creating the on-ramp for the better products. But at the end of the day, we also need good, strong policy to truly address the scope of the problem. Got it. Okay. So, you know, so we spoke a little bit about this, the, the production of plastic and how we can personally decrease our use and just being conscious about this. I think that's a, that's a very, you know, big that's a very important point that you share with us because, you know, going to the grocery store, for example, if you're conscious about them giving you a plastic bag and bringing your own bags, or you're looking at produce and one store sells that without the wrappers, or you go to farmer's markets, you can get it that way. You know, yeah. there's many ways you can work your way around it. You know, the, the other part is plastics in the environment itself, you know, and that's, it's, it's a huge burden on the environment. Can you just, can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, the, the part, plastic, Burdens. I, I, as I said, I come primarily from a health background and health. It, you know, my my orientation on these issues is from significantly health driven. But you know, we all know that there's a lot of ocean plastic out there. That there are islands of plastic in the ocean, so to speak, and bits of plastic floating around that fish and creatures in the ocean are consuming, and that can lead to harms for them. And we also know that animals get entangled in these plastics, and especially in the oceans, and that can lead to harms to those animals. So the microplastics angle is is one that I think is a common problem for both wildlife and for humans, because microplastics have been shown to be of health concern for animals already. And there's no reason to believe that humans are peculiar in the way that we won't be affected by these microplastics, which are getting ending up in our bodies. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of impact from a nature perspective as well. You know, when you think about the life cycle of plastics, you begin to think, okay, it's not just about the plastic ending up in the environment and the harm it does to wildlife or nature in that direct way. But it's also like, if you think about the extraction of the fuel, you know, the fossil fuel in the first place, and the processing right. of it, that's also going to create harms throughout the life cycle, not just for humans, but also for, from a nature perspective. So, you know, again, you know, we try, we try to do our, our part in recycling and, and proper disposal, but they just, they get out there, they get in the environment and then mm -hmm. consequences. Now you, you mentioned the production of plastics and the health consequences, and then also microplastics. So maybe we can, we can jump into that a bit. Can you sure. talk more about that and the health effects? Uh, there have been studies that show that there is harm to animals from, from microplastics. And there's reason to believe that the same kinds of things could be happening with humans. And so, you know, that example that just goes to show you if one portion of the plastics universe can cause that kind of health concern. Right. And then there's these other things that can also be causing damage. The scope is pretty big. Okay. So maybe we can, we, we'll, we'll talk about the chemicals that you mentioned yeah. previously, but maybe we'll, we'll talk about this microplastics first because that. That's just sounds uh, crazy to me that 
on a weekly basis, you mentioned that we're eating about a credit card size worth of plastic. We're ingesting mm-hmm. credit card size worth of plastic. And that's about five grams? Yes. And how are we ingesting that? Well, I think that's because microplastics are in the environment. You know, when you have plastic out there, small bits of it are breaking off and they're ending up in lots of different things, whether it be food or dust or water or whatever the case may be. And so I'm not sure exactly what the mechanism is, but those are the, if plastic's out there in the world, we're going to okay. have some of it in us as well. So, and I've, I've heard recently that many of these microplastics come from the, our clothing itself. So when we yes. have... And so that when we wash our clothes, for example, it yes. gets washed off, goes in the waterways and, and then it goes in the oceans. And, that, and that's where all that, that microplastic resides. And then it just kind of recirculates. That's is, definitely is that one of the avenues. Okay. okay. Yeah, because you, a lot of, you know, you think about nylon and other kinds of plastic derived clothing that is, again, made from plastics and microfibers wash off. And like you said, what you put it in a washing machine, end up in the wastewater and so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of microplastics being generated through the clothing that we wear. What about bottled water? Do we get microplastics by drinking out of plastic bottles? You know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. You know, it, it would make some sense that there might be some that happens yeah. through that, but I don't know the answer. So I, okay. I can't answer yeah. that. So. And, and there are other chemicals that are in plastic itself that we, yes. we do ingest when drinking out of plastics and they... Um, and you, you kind of, you can sense that you can taste that even, you know, like I, I know that certain people actually would rather drink out of glass bottles. They're like, I don't like that plasticky taste. They're more sensitive to it potentially. Personally, I don't really have that. I don't personally taste it, but I know certain people do. Uh, you know, that being said, we could talk about these other chemicals in just a little bit, but you know, that potentially that's another way of microplastic ingestion. So we're ingesting microplastics about five grams a week. And you mentioned that the biggest health consequence that we have in ingesting this is because these are endocrine disruptors primarily. You know, I don't know if they're the biggest, but they're one of the possible impacts because there's so many chemicals that are added to plastics. Some of them are hormone disruptors. Some of them are carcinogens. Some of them have other kinds of health effects associated with them. PFAS are associated, for instance, with the multiple kinds of health effects. And so, you know, flame retardants are associated with multiple kinds of health effects. So hormone disruption is just one of the myriad effects associated with plastic-associated chemicals. Are you struggling with reaching your health goals? Do you feel like you need extra help to achieve your desired level of wellness? Well, we're here to tell you that you're not alone. Our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below, offers a variety of resources to help you on your journey towards optimal health. One of the most popular resources is the 10-Day Body Reset course, which is designed to teach you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and how to lower your blood sugar, blood pressure, body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Our program is comprehensive yet easy to follow, and we've seen amazing results for those who have completed it. But that's not all. We offer a body optimization course, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. Our program is tailored towards your individual needs and goals so that you can be sure that you're getting the most effective guidance. And if you need even more personalized support, we offer one-on-one consultations. During these sessions, we'll work with you to create a personalized plan that takes into account your unique circumstances, preferences, and goals. Visit peakwellnesshealth.com today and take the first step towards achieving your health goals. Yeah, and, and I've been you know, reading that it can have GI effects, immune system disruption, endocrine dis- disruption, just baseline inflammation. And some of these things aren't as stark of a consequence as 
cancer. Well, though certainly some of these chemicals can cause cancer, but yes, you know, ingesting microplastics, for example, it may not cause cancer, but it causes effects over time and it builds up in our systems over time, um, such that it does create inflammation, does create toxicity. And it's something, it, you know, that we would want to avoid. Like if you can avoid it, there's no reason to, to ingest this stuff. So, so microplastics, that's, that's one. You mentioned there are three chemicals that have a, that caused a significant burden of health consequences. What are, mm -hmm. what are those chemicals? Can you describe that a little bit? So the three chemicals that the estimate was based on were PBDE, BPA, and DEHP. Now, these are all acronyms for other things. BPA is probably the most well-known and PBD is another, PBDE is another terrible chemical. So those are the three that that estimate was based on. I see. Okay. And, and you know, bisphenol A, BPA is something that we, we hear about. It's been banned in certain municipalities. It should be banned throughout, you know, the United States, but it hasn't been yet to my knowledge. And, uh, you know, it's something where you, you truly want to avoid if you have young children, because that, that again, that's, that's a endocrine disruptor and it can cause downstream consequences. So those, those chemicals, it's been estimated that those chemicals themselves, and, and those are chemicals are utilized when in plastic production. They often added to various kinds of plastic or they're used in the production of plastic. So, okay. Excellent. Okay. EPA, for instance, was added to certain kinds of bottles for a long period of time. And the problem with one of the, one of the things we encounter with all this, of course, is like, you know, BPA often got taken out and replaced with a very similar chemical. And that's a thing that we're often trying to, that's a phenomenon that we're often trying to combat, you know? So moving from BPA to a BPS or BPF or some other bisphenol or, you know, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It just moves to an adjacent chemical with, which has similar or worse effects sometimes. And so we're increasingly looking at these things through the lens of a class of chemicals. So when you look at, for instance, our work on PFAS chemicals, which, as I mentioned, are sometimes referred to as forever chemicals because they last so long in the environment and they're referred to as persistent chemicals. And they're associated with a whole variety of health impacts. We're looking at the whole class of PFAS chemicals and there are 14,000 plus chemicals in that class. So, you know, the idea is well, we don't want to say this particular chemical and, you know, industry moves into a similar adjacent chemical. So, right. That, that, so that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you, what you're saying is like, you know, we are, you know, uh, NRDC and similar groups are um, litigating and trying to stop the production of certain types of chemicals like BPA, but then the chemical industry just shifts and says, oh, well, we've got some, something that's, you know, it's fine. We won't use BPA, but we're going to use something else. Yeah. And you have to go through the same process and try to stop the production of, of that one too. And it could, it could go on and on and on. Yeah. So we're trying to, like you said, you mentioned root causes. So we're trying to think more holistically, think to think more, you know, how, what we want is for harmful chemicals or concerns not to be used. So it makes sense to think of similar chemicals together. That's the idea of thinking of chemicals as a class and trying to address them as a class so that we're not, you know, moving from one chemical to just another similar chemical. Okay, great. And then, and and I know you're an expert in PFAS. Can you just describe what that is again? And again, we know that's used in somewhat some in, in plastic production, but it's used in other ways too. Describe yes. what that is again and, and how it affects us. Sure. PFAS are a large class of chemicals, as I mentioned, often referred to as forever because they last in the environment for such a long time. They build up in the environment because they're persistent. And you know, we don't really have a way to truly get rid of them at this point in time. So 
they keep adding up as we use more and more of them. And they move around easily in the environment. And that's another facet of them. So, you know, they've been found in rainwater. They travel easily through the environment. And so I think, and they're used in so many different applications. They've been used in firefighting foam. They've been used in food packaging to provide state, you know, sort of a barrier for wetness. They've been used in nonstick cookware. They've been used in ski wax. They've been used in clothing for stain and water resistance. There's a whole host of applications and they're used in manufacturing processes all the time. So there's this, almost all of us have PFAS in our, in our blood. And so it's, it's a major concern. And then it's found in the drinking water of an enormous number of people. You know, I think EPA estimated that the drinking water of 70 to 94 million Americans is contaminated with harmful levels of six toxic forever chemicals. And the exposure is likely to be much higher when you consider the full universe of PFAS. So it's ubiquitous, it's out there, and we need to stop adding to the problem because the stuff is, as I said, persistent. It's just adding up as we go. We need to turn off the tap and stop using unnecessary, stop the unnecessary uses of PFAS. So we're doing a lot of work to, on, a, on a variety of strategies, and I'll describe them briefly. We are, first of all, f- foremost, trying to s- turn off the tap on PFAS, so stopping the unnecessary uses of PFAS. Yeah. Um, the second is to establish monitoring for PFAS as a class so that we're not just looking at the six that we might be aware of or the 29 that EPA has identified, but trying to look at across the whole class trying to get strong drinking water standards. So we're getting as much of this stuff out of our water as possible. And we're doing that work federally and at the state level as well. We're also advancing policies to clean up the pollution that exists already, that's already out there and supporting public investments and research and development so that all of this happens. Now, because we don't have a way, you know, as I mentioned, we don't have a way to safely destroy this stuff. That's the kind of research development that is needed so that we can get to the place where uh, we can safely destroy or manage the PFAS. So those are some of the priorities or strategies that we're employing to address this problem. And at the moment, a lot of our focus has been getting, you know, turning off the tap and stopping the unnecessary uses. We've worked on bills to ban PFAS in various product categories where we don't, but they're not necessary. We work with firefighters, uh, right. for instance, to ban PFAS and firefighting foam in California and New York, and a lot of other states have done that too. We've last year, we worked to ban PFAS in clothing and textiles in California and uh, PFAS in apparel in New York. And I think because those states are such large markets, it's going to change the market for PFAS and textiles much more broadly, not just in those states, but across the country and indeed across the globe. That's, um, so, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing advocacy group that, that, that you guys have done. And, and you know, we... we when, when we hear about this and we're like, you know, as listeners, we're like, okay, wow, this is such a toxic chemical. It's used, you know, it's used in certain situations, like as you mentioned, in consumer products and, and, and plastics and thing like, things like that. And there's maybe situations where they need to be used and there's situations where they don't. Well, the question is, why, why is it used in situations where it, it shouldn't be used? What, what is happening there? Is it cost? Is it sort of like a cost reduction for, for certain things? Like what, what is... What's the reason? You know, because it's used in so many places and so for so many purposes, it, you know, a, a single story might not explain all of it, but right. some of it, you know, is marketing. You can say this has this functionality by adding this, you know, for, I remember reading about stain resistant pants at one point in time, or they were advertising those. And 
pants don't really need stain resistance, but it was a selling point. Right. Yeah. And even today, there are lots of things that are marketed as water resistant or stain resistant that don't really need that functionality. And, but it's a selling point or it makes it seem more attractive to somebody else. And so, so it's somebody who might buy the stuff. And so it gets added in. Sometimes it's because we have set stand, you know, for instance, in the firefighting foam context for a long time, people were following a military spec standard. That was about a certain level of performance, but you don't need that to, make sure that fires are put out. You can put out fires without quite meeting those standards as long as it can work to prevent fires. And that's why we passed the laws that we did working with firefighters who, by the way, are exposed to all the surface of chemicals and are very concerned about them. And that's why we worked with them on both flame retardants and on on, on PFAS. It's an, you know, their, their occupation is considered a cancer risk factor just because they're exposed to so much stuff. But in that scenario, you know, we work with them on PFAS and firefighting foam to remove that stuff because you can. There are alternatives out there that don't use PFAS that might take a, a little bit longer or work a little differently, but they'll still work to fight fires and to stop fires. And so that's the kind of thing. There are multiple different kinds of reasons for why these might be out there. And of course, people who produce them are selling them to various people, saying, "Hey, it'll do this for you. You can use it in this way." So. And the risks always haven't always been well known. Got it. So it, it sounds like it, this, this, a lot of these substances were produced without the knowledge of the consequences. And, and they were consistently used, not really knowing until maybe many years later, like until times like now where we're starting to realize the health consequences, the environmental consequences of these products. And now we're trying to, you know, reverse engineer and get them out of our system. Is that is that what's happening, basically? Um, I think that depends on which part of the system you're talking about. I think a lot of the producers of PFAS knew about the harms a long time ago. Uh, if you look at movies like Dark Waters, for instance, which tells uh -huh. the true story of some of the PFAS, you'll see that some of the manufacturers were aware of the problem long before, although they continued to deny it. And that's been true of a lot of other uses of chemicals. You know, for instance, when we worked on flame retardants, there were all sorts of claims that they weren't harmful, even though people were aware there were problems with them. I see. And so I think it depends on who you talk about. There are probably people who were using them without being aware of the concerns or the problems. And the public was probably not well informed about them for a long period of time. But, you know, I think especially for the legacy, the older PFAS concerns have been raised for a long time and people have moved into other kinds of PFAS by saying, oh, that was the problem, but not this one, the problem that we were talking about before, moving into a similar, but harm still harmful chemical. A and we are seeing, yeah, it's not that it was completely unknown. It's like, you know, there were parts, there, there were people who didn't know about it, the public didn't know about it. And there were, you know, probably some users or consumers of PFAS that weren't, that, weren't always aware of it. But it's also the way we regulate chemicals and the way we approach chemicals. We're not necessarily thinking holistically about them. We're thinking about, hey, will it do X and Y and Z for us? We're not necessarily thinking about what else it might do. What other right. what happens to it after I use it? What happens when I'm when it's being produced? You know, what else does it put out into the world? Those are the questions that are not always being thought about or addressed. That's not the way our system has historically been set up. Right, and I think we need to be moving those kind to those kinds of mindsets and thinking more from the perspective of, hey, before we use this, let's think carefully about it. What does it do? What are the potential harms? Have we really evaluated it to think about all the potential consequences and what it might do? 
And we're beginning to see a shift towards that paradigm. I think the EU is beginning to say, for instance, the European Union is beginning to, you know, their chemical infrastructure says, hey, you need some kind of approval before you start using these chemicals, those yes. kinds of things. So we're beginning to see that shift happen in, in, in some places. And we don't have that appro approval method in the U.S., as no, bit. you know, I think there 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 are impro some improvements that have been made, and there are some. And colleagues of mine can tell you more about the Toxic Substances Control Act has put in place some some provisions that will hopefully improve some aspects of chemical regulation. But overall, there are still many shortcomings in our regulation of chemicals in the U.S. I see, and and my understanding is the the act that you the Toxin Control Act that you just mentioned was formed in 1973 or around that that time. And it was just concerning, you know, maybe a few hundred to a thousand chemicals versus now where there's 80,000 chemicals that have unknown health consequences out there. It still hasn't been revised. It was uh, the Toxic Substances Control Act was revised uh, a few years ago. Oh, it was. Uh, and okay. Now they're being there. The EPA is working on regulations to implement that. But there have been lots of concerns about the way it was implemented in previous iterations. There, now it's shifting in a direction that's better. But that law still has lots of short, you know, didn't address the full scope of the problem. And there are lots of things that are still need to be improved over that. And, you know, I, I think my colleague Daniel Rosenberg could tell you a lot more about the ins and outs of Tosca and what it's improved and what could still be improved. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we're making some headway, but not really where we need to be. Yes. Okay. Obviously, as we discussed in the beginning of the podcast, you know, we're using these, we're using plastics, we're using, we're, we're using many of these consumer goods that have these chemicals in them and really not knowing what the consequences are. We still don't have a great idea of what the consequences are, but we do know that there's, there's health effects and there's good data to support the fact that there are adverse consequences, endocrine disruption, cancer, inflammation. I mean, there's, there's many things like link you know, these chemicals to adverse consequences, mm -hmm. good studies supporting this. And really the, the overarching theme here is stop using the stuff, especially if you don't need it, you know, just reduce Absolutely. usage. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the key concepts that a colleague of mine just wrote a paper about along with a bunch of other folks is the concept of essential use or getting rid of non-essential uses. The idea is you know, if there are safer alternatives out there, if the function isn't needed for the particular product to work, and if the use of that chemical in that product is not critical for uh, health, safety, and the functioning of society, then we should get rid of those. We should phase those uses out, you know, and that's a pretty useful frame to look at it through. If you're talking about a chemical of concern, let's not use them unless it's really needed. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about water for a bit, because you mentioned a lot of these chemicals are in our drinking water. Do the municipalities do a good job of filtering these out? Should we have filters uh, at home to filter these out? What are your thoughts there? The drinking water regulation of PFAS is, is beginning to head in the right direction, but there's a long way still to go. So, for instance, EPA proposed to regulate about six PFAS out of a class of thousands of chemicals. Um, and there has developed, they have developed methods to measure the level in drinking water of only about 29 individual PFAS. So colleagues of mine just published a paper showing that, you know, there were 12 PFAS in the drinking water samples that they tested that are not even included in EPA's methods. And 
there are communities that will not be protected as a result. So, and some states have passed standards for PFAS in drinking water, but again, they don't cover the full class. So there, while we're beginning to get some protection against PFAS showing up in some states and EPA is headed in the direction that EPA action is not yet final either. So PFAS, for the most part, people are not protected against PFAS in drinking water at the moment. We need stronger, more comprehensive drinking water standards that cover the full class of PFAS and that address the full class of PFAS. And we're going to need additional advocacy to ensure that that happens. So when it comes to PFAS, you know, I don't think our drinking water standards are necessarily protecting us as much as they should, as we need them to. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, we're, and we're specifically talking about PFAS here, but there's so many other reasons. So my, my personal feeling is to filter your water, you know, and maybe, maybe 40 years ago, I mean, certainly 40 years ago, the water quality was better than it is currently. But now with all the chemicals that we've just been discussing, you know, things like heavy metals, chlorine, volatile organic compounds or VOCs, it's, the water has been becoming more and more contaminated, you know, pharmaceuticals and things like that. The best way to filter water is through a reverse osmosis system. The problem is those can sometimes be a little price prohibitive for folks and it does waste water because they, it, through osmosis, there's wastewater and there's drinking water. So there's a lot of water that's circulated through the system. But it is, it currently, as far as my knowledge goes, that's the best way to, to filter water and filter all of these substances out, including PFAS. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe PFAS is, can be filtered out using reverse osmosis filtration as well. If you don't have access to that, using a standard water filter is, is better than nothing. Like when the Brita filters and those types of filters are, are okay, they re mostly remove chlorine, not as much of the the heavy metals, but, and other chemicals, but there are even better filters. Like there's one called the zero filter, which I use. And that is just a, it's, it's a bigger filter. It removes a lot of these chemicals and heavy metals and, you know, you, you, it results in cleaner water. So, you know, that, that being, all that being said, I, I, I just really would recommend those that have the ability to do so to filter your water. And then also, as, as we just discussed, tap water, you know, or a bottled water rather is not really clean water. I mean, there's, there, there are in some places they actually use tap water to fill up the bottles and maybe filter tap water. So it's not really clean water. It's got these chemical chemicals in them from the plastic it's housed in. So better not to use that. Filter your own water, bring stainless steel containers or glass containers to store it. And that way you're not exposing yourself to so much of these toxins. I know we, we spoke about many different topics like plastics and chemicals and PFAS and those types of things. Is there anything else that maybe we haven't spoke about that, that maybe you can comment on and help educate our listeners to any of these other chemicals or what, what, what you guys are doing at NRDC, something that may be helpful to them? Sure. So let me just follow up on what you just said first briefly, sure. which is sure. to say reverse osmosis is something we'd recommend for treatment of water at the drinking, at the municipal scale. So, or for the water agencies scale. So, you know, that is an effective treatment for PFAS from what I understand. And then 
when it comes to drink bottled water, you know, that may be the best option in many places. But again, bottled water depends on the source. They all come from different kinds of sources. So, I, you know, I don't know if I can draw a uniform statement about bottled water, sure. but sure. You know, it depends on where it's coming from. And it depends yeah. on the, you know. If you're living in Flint, Michigan, you're not, you, you, you do not want to drink anything coming out of your tap. You, you know, bottled exactly. water is the only thing you can go to. Sure. Yeah. So I think it, yeah. there's a lot of different nuances involved in that particular yeah. conversation. But at the same time, you know, if you're worried about contaminants in water, filtering it is probably a useful thing to do. And, you know, different filters deal with different kinds of contaminants. And I think reverse osmosis is more comprehensive than other types of treatments. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, Avi, thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. It's been very educational. If anybody wants to get in touch with you or, or find out more about NRDC, how would, how would they do that? I think you should visit our that website, nrdc.org. There's a lot of information there about our work. And I do. I, we all have blogs on our website. So I, I blog there as well. And you can find my blogs there. And I think my contact information is there as well. And you can reach out to me through that. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.